of the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a difficult book to find in your Bible. Uh, so I'm glad we have the page number printed in the bulletin. That's on page 933 of the Pew Bible. There are about four or five books from the end of the Old Testament. So find Malachi and turn left, and you will eventually find this little book. It's a book that uh, is often overlooked. It's a perplexing book, I think, for many people, and uh, a book that has a very uh, closely uh, argued message. And so uh, we're going to begin that message today with the first four verses, Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Let's read together the word of God. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Amen. This is the word of God. And may he be pleased to bless both its reading and its preaching this morning. One of the remarkable features of the so-called secular society in which we are living, and particularly over the last 20 years or so, is the emergence of certain words in the public square that have achieved a sort of divine status, uh, what journalist Marvin Olasky calls God words. Uh, these are words that all Americans are increasingly being compelled to bow to and use with reverence. And those who depart from the received secular orthodoxy of these God words are sure to become objects of wrath. Arguably, the greatest God word of our age is the word tolerance. Tolerance. It's, it's a word that has radically changed its meaning in the past generation. Uh, you see, tolerance used to mean something you respectfully disagree with, but patiently endure. And instead, that word has come to mean something you are obliged to respectfully agree with. Increasingly, Christians are being vilified because they object to certain evil practices that have become prevalent in our society. Uh, we are intolerant of these evils, and we pray to God for our nation that these evils will cease. But what happens when you pray for your nation and these evils don't cease. In fact, they continue to multiply. What happens when 
evildoers don't perish, but rather seem to prosper? What happens when the cause of Christ suffers dramatic and seemingly irrecoverable setbacks? We might well be tempted to ask the question, is God himself tolerant of evil? This doubt is expressed by many believers in Scripture. Asaph struggled with it, you remember, in Psalm 73. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Jeremiah struggled with this doubt too. Jeremiah 12.1, he asks, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? And the prophet Habakkuk, as we've just read, struggled with it too. We just read in verses 2 and 3, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? You see, what each of these believers have in common is what the scriptures teach about God does not seem to match what they are experiencing from God. They don't seem to line up. They know that God hates evil. So why then does God seem to let evil go unpunished? Why does he let the cause of the righteous suffer? Well, perhaps you've had the same struggle. Maybe you've asked the same basic question that we find Habakkuk asking at the start of this book. Is God tolerant of evil? Well, over the next several weeks, God willing, we're going to listen uh, to God as he answers this question and how he patiently matures this believer as he asks this difficult question so that he can learn to live by faith in the evil age he found himself in. And that's really the theme of this book and this uh, brief series, Living by Faith in an evil age. It's a lesson we all need to learn. And we learn to live by faith in an evil age, not by sticking our heads in the sand, not by cloistering ourselves from engagement with the world, but rather by confronting the evil of our age, by submitting to the Lord's gracious and sovereign plan for the nations, even when it seems puzzling to us. So with that, let's turn to the book itself. I'd like to uh, look at these first four verses this morning under three headings. First, we'll consider the prophet's agonizing burden. Secondly, we'll move to the nation's appalling wickedness. And thirdly, the Lord's apparent silence. The prophet's agonizing burden, the nation's appalling wickedness, and the Lord's apparent silence. Let's think first then about the prophet's agonizing burden. Have a look again at verse 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. 
There are three things that the prophet Habakkuk, about the prophet Habakkuk rather, that we really need to appreciate if we're going to understand this book that bears his name. And the first of these is Habakkuk's world. Habakkuk's world, we need to understand the context. The time references in the book indicate that Habakkuk ministered in the southern kingdom of Judah after the reforms of Josiah and just prior to her invasion by the the Chaldeans or Babylonians uh, in 605 BC. So the period we think is probably during that short reign of King Jehoiakim that we just read about. Uh, that would make this prophet a contemporary with Jeremiah, Zephaniah, and Obadiah. And it's the period we read about earlier in Second Chronicles 36. Now, we might not be absolutely sure uh, precisely when he wrote, but we do know with absolute certainty the kind of world he found himself living in. It was a world a lot like our own. He describes in his book the national decline in morality. Domestically, all was not well for the kingdom of Judah. It was a time of great cultural Transition. Judah, you remember, had once been a great God-fearing nation. But her divinely appointed shepherds had become corrupt. Her prophets had been ignored or locked up. Her priests had become hypocritical social climbers. And her kings, with few exceptions, as we just read, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. All traces of the revival under good King Josiah had been erased. The worship of God was no longer regulated by scripture, but rather by the whims of the worshippers. Judah had incorporated elements of paganism into God's holy worship, and the land was defiled. So you have this national decline in morality, and you also have um, in this book a very clear description of the international balance of power. Uh, this was a time of great political transition and instability across Habakkuk's world. And again, we read this earlier from Second Chronicles. Uh, the former great superpower of the East, the Assyrian Empire, was being eclipsed by a new rising superpower, the vicious Chaldean Empire, also known as Babylon. Uh, the prophets Isaiah and Micah had predicted their ascent to power a generation before, but the book of Habakkuk, as we're about to see, explores why God would raise up such a wicked nation. Why he would tolerate their rise to power and the key role that they would play in God's holy purposes for the world and his church within it. So if the earlier generation of prophets had predicted the what, Habakkuk explores the why. Why is God allowing Habakkuk's world to fall apart as it is? But we don't just need to understand Habakkuk's world. We also need to understand Habakkuk's words. Habakkuk's words. In this short book, you will find Habakkuk's words to God. In other words, instead of simply relating God's concerns to Judah, this little book relates Habakkuk's own concerns to God in the form of three earnest wrestling prayers. 
They're found in chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, verses 12 to 17, and chapter 3. In fact, the name Habakkuk in the Hebrew uh, literally means to cling uh, or to embrace. He, He models for us this clinging to God in prayer, wrestling with God like Jacob, especially when things don't seem to make sense. We find Habakkuk's words to God, and then, of course, we also find God's words to Habakkuk. God answers his prayers, and that's what makes up the rest of the book. So the oracles Habakkuk saw and related to Judah were God's answers to his own private prayers. But they were not private revelations for Habakkuk only. They together were public oracles for the whole church. And friends, God's answer to his prayers was not easy to swallow. He calls it an oracle. Other translations, I think, perhaps more helpfully translate the word as burden. The burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. It was a heavy message. It was burdensome things to convey about sin and judgment and the sovereignty of God that will call for for faith. So you've been warned, okay? Uh, This is not uh, necessarily a happy book, okay? It deals with difficult things and deals with them honestly, and it's a good thing it does, because sometimes we struggle with these doubts and we maybe wonder, are we really Christians? If we're asking questions like, is God tolerant of evil? How good it is that God has given us books like Habakkuk. that say, it's okay to ask those questions. Tough things happen in life. Not just our personal lives, but in our nation and across the world. And we look at it all and we say, what is God doing? So this is a burdensome book. But it's an important book. Uh, for us to understand. And we've seen Habakkuk's world and his words. There's also Habakkuk's wisdom. Because this book contains elements of what we sometimes call wisdom literature. That's because it contains a remarkable dialogue with God about the nature of human evil and God's Sovereignty. Habakkuk is an individual believer who is struggling with the problem of evil. Like the book of Job, his book sets out to vindicate God, what we call a theodicy. Habakkuk teaches us how to reconcile the reality of human wickedness and brokenness and sin in a world that purportedly is ruled by a just and sovereign God. Habakkuk teaches us how to pray earnestly and honestly with God in such trials. And Habakkuk, perhaps most importantly of all, teaches us how to keep on singing, even in the midst of all the mess. His conclusion is expressed in a beautiful song in chapter 3. You see, those who have been taught to live by faith in an evil world have learned how to still sing praises to God, even in the midst of trouble. So it should be clear from this uh, brief overview that the prophet's agonizing burden, that his message is extremely relevant uh, to us all here today. We too live in Habakkuk's world. 
an age where there is a great national decline in morality and a changing international balance of power. We too need Habakkuk's words to wrestle with God in prayer, to speak to him and to listen for his voice in his revealed word. And we too need Habakkuk's wisdom to struggle with the problem of evil and to live by faith in an evil age. And it's that evil age that we turn to next. We thought of the prophet's agonizing burden. Next, let's think then about the nation's appalling wickedness. The nation's appalling wickedness. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at Habakkuk's first prayer. And it's a brief one. Let's have a look at the prayer again, verses 2 to 4. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. This prayer it kind of reads like one of the Psalms of lament, doesn't it? But it also reads like something even closer to home. It reads like a lineup of the news headlines uh, from this past week. Uh, Habakkuk forms his prayer to God. He sums up the state of his nation under the telling collective heading of violence. Why, he says, why do I cry to you violence? And then he proceeds to break it down into its constituent parts. It's as if he's reading to God the headlines of his nation's appalling wickedness. Let's unpack the headlines. The, the first headline that Habakkuk reads to God is iniquity and wrong. Iniquity and wrong. Verse 3, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Uh, these Hebrew words carry a similar sense of physical trouble and sorrow brought by sin. I don't need to tell you uh, that we don't have to look far in our news feeds uh, to read a daily litany of the miseries found in the streets and homes of our city and our nation and our world. Homelessness and divorce and abuse sickness and disease, addictions, all these things that we read about in our world fall into this category of iniquity and wrong. The second headline Habakkuk reads to God is destruction and violence. Verse 3, destruction and violence are before me. The word in the Hebrew destruction is a very strong word meaning devastation or chaos. And the word translated violence is repeatedly found in Habakkuk. It refers to man's wickedness and brutality to his fellow man. And do we not have reason to cry out to God violence for our city and our nation and our world? The mass shootings have become almost a weekly headline in our news. 63 million abortions and counting since 1973. And it hasn't stopped just because Roe v. Wade has been overturned, as we know. 
and the 500 plus days since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There have been over 350,000 military casualties, now including at least 23,000 civilian casualties. Physician-assisted suicide is currently legal in 11 American states, as well as Canada, Austria, New Zealand, Portugal, Spain, Belgium, the Netherlands, Switzerland, and Luxembourg. And the, the tally continues. Or take human trafficking. There are an estimated 20 to 30 million slaves in the world today. Destruction and violence. The third headline Habakkuk reads to God is strife and contention in verse 3. Strife and contention arise, he says. All sides of the political spectrum use this language of conflict. Have you noticed that? Um, they, how they describe our society's evils as they are perceived by both sides. And so we have the war on marriage and the war on women and the war on the unborn and the war on you name it. Uh, there's a war going on, strife and contention. Human relationships designed by God for harmony and blessing are marred by these things. 45 to 50% of marriages end in divorce. TV networks make millions of dollars every year on shows that make conflict into entertainment. Judge Judy. Divorce court. It's pathetic. What's happening? We're turning these things into entertainment. Things that should be causing us to weep before God. Not to mention the dozens of vacuous human dramas that depict the misery of broken human relationships. So people just devour this stuff. The, the soap operas. My dad used to call them the soap that dirties. Right? And he was right. Yeah. I always have to at least endure 10 minutes of these things when I go to the doctor's waiting room. There it is, the big screen. It's like, oh my goodness. The misery. And people watch it as entertainment. And what is the result? The fourth headline Habakkuk reads to God is injustice. Verse 4, therefore, or so the, the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. So justice goes forth perverted. See friends, the consequences of the previous headlines, iniquity and wrong and conflict and all of these things, is that the law is paralyzed. And the Hebrew word for law here is Torah. It's referring to the law of God, and in particular, the law of God as the proper basis for the laws of the land. In other words, God's word has been rejected as a restraint upon the sins of society. And therefore, Habakkuk continues, justice goes forth perverted. The legal system of a nation stands imperiled when the moral absolutes of the law of God are by judicial decree determined to be outdated or irrelevant. And have we not seen monumental examples of this in recent legal rulings, for example, on marriage from our nation's highest court? The eternal law of God about the fundamental institution of marriage has been set aside in favor of this society's new insights. Let me just give you one sentence from a recent Supreme Court ruling on marriage. Quote, 
New insights and societal understandings can reveal unjustified inequality within fundamental institutions that once passed unnoticed and unchallenged. In that one sentence, the law of God and marriage is just swept aside as an unnoticed and unchallenged inequality. The just law of God is unjust, says our Supreme Court. Truly justice goes forth perverted. And we could go on, we could talk about unjust plea bargains or lenient sentences, the repeal of the death penalty in most states. When the law of God ceases to play a role in the life of a nation, you can expect that nation's courts to issue increasingly unjust verdicts. And that is what the prophet Habakkuk is witnessing. And so are we. And so finally, the fifth headline Habakkuk leads to God is the wicked surround the righteous. The wicked surround the righteous. When God's law is rejected by men, when the legal hand of restraint is removed, when good is called evil and evil is called good, then it's not long before the wicked make targets of the righteous. The persecution of the church is inevitable in this fallen world. Jesus said so. So did Paul. So does Habakkuk. And that explains why he wrote this book for the church. That she might live by faith in an evil age and be able to make sense of the headlines. So by way of application, brothers and sisters, like Habakkuk, we too need to read our news headlines to the Lord. We should use them as a prayer list, not a worry list. Habakkuk here was engaged with his society. He uh, was acquainting himself with national sins so he could weep over them and confess them like righteous Lot in Sodom. You remember how Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2, 3, righteous Lot tormented his righteous soul. His acquaintance with national sins meant he was better able to pray to God and to pray intelligently for the nation he loved so much. And we need to ask ourselves this morning, do we do that? Do we pray to God about our nation's appalling wickedness? Or is it just possible that we've become desensitized to it? That we're so used to reading the headlines, oh, there's another mass shooting, and we just kind of don't think about it anymore. Or worse still, have we turned it into entertainment? Oftentimes the news reads like entertainment. Oh, wait next after the next break because we've got a great story to tell you about something awful. And I try to keep our interest using these things to entertain us. Do we shrug over our nation's sin? Or do we struggle in prayer over it? The prophet's agonizing burden, the nation's appalling wickedness, and finally the Lord's apparent Silence, the Lord's apparent silence. Habakkuk here has basically given us his own uh, State of the Union address. The nation and the church within it have a grave problem, but that is not Habakkuk's gravest problem. 
Habakkuk's gravest problem is a theological problem. It is the fact of God's apparent silence. Where is God in all of this? Where is God? Look at what he says. Verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you violence. And you will not save. And verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Notice that last phrase. It's not just that God causes Habakkuk to see trouble, but that God himself is looking at the trouble and he's doing nothing about it. That's Habakkuk's problem. Why do you look idly at wrong? Or or better still as the NIV, why do you tolerate wrong? You can see the believer's perplexity here. What a stunning thing to say to God, you will not hear, you will not save, you tolerate wrong. The prophet knows that God is omniscient, he knows that he is omnipotent, and yet it seems as if his ears are closed to the cries and the prayers of the righteous. It seems As if God is tolerant of evil because he's not exerting his power to make it stop. It's the problem of God's apparent silence. And again, this is a a common problem expressed in scripture. Psalm 22 verse 2. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I'm not silent. Or take Psalm 39, 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears. Or Daniel 9, 19. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God. In fact, I think the very commonness of this experience surely shows us that this apparent silence is a very common practice of the all-wise God to call the righteous to faith, to show them his unfailing wisdom and his inscrutable providence, to demonstrate his long-suffering with the wicked to result either in their salvation or their damnation. Friends, you don't need to simply deduce this from these texts because you know it from personal experience. You know this yourself. How often have you felt like Habakkuk? You've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed for something. And the heavens just seem like a wall of brass. Your prayers just bounce off that ceiling, it seems. And you're tempted to say with Habakkuk, you do not hear. You do not save. How long, O Lord? Maybe it's personal trials in your family. Maybe it's some secret struggle with sin in your heart. Maybe your sense of justice is provoked as his was as you look at the state of the nation 
But whatever it is, the question is the same. How do we reconcile what we see and hear with what we know is true about God? What we experience challenges what we believe. The visible realities of injustice in our world seem more real than the invisible reality of a just God. God's providence seems to contradict his character. So how shall you reconcile these things? Well, you need to learn, as Habakkuk is about to learn, that God does here. He does here. Every single prayer is heard. Every single tear you shed is in his bottle. Every petition is written in his scroll. But when he chooses to act remains his own sovereign prerogative. And that's why Habakkuk doesn't just say why. He also asks how long? How long? He exemplifies, Habakkuk exemplifies the believer's perplexity, but he also exemplifies the believer's prayers. The believer's prayers. What did Habakkuk do with all of this perplexity that he experienced? Well, he didn't let it drive him from God. Rather, he let it drive him to God. God's apparent silence did not mean that he had to be silent. He got on his knees and he poured out his heart to God. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry? That surely implies that he's been crying a long time. He's been faithful to continue to bombard heaven's throne of grace with his petitions and his prayers about the crisis. And it's not an idle waiting. Waiting upon God is an active thing. It's an active thing. Waiting on God in prayer. What we're going to learn from Habakkuk is how to pray for our nation. How to pray for our own crises as well. Habakkuk says to you, pray. Pray for divine intervention. Oh Lord, how long is just shorthand for how long before you intervene? When prayer seems to fail, we can sometimes try to intervene instead and do God's work for him, putting our trust in politicians or in parties. These are, of course, means that God is often pleased to use, but they are not a replacement for fervent prayer. The Puritan Thomas Brooks writes, Oh, the power of private prayer. It has a kind of omnipotency in it. It takes God captive. It holds him as a prisoner. It binds the hands of the Almighty. Yea, it will wring a mercy, a blessing out of the hand of heaven itself. You understand he's not making a theological statement about the sovereignty of man. But do we really believe that prayer achieves things? That the fervent, effectual prayer of the righteous man avails much. It's not because your little prayer is omnipotent. It's because it summons the power of the omnipotent God. That's what he's talking about. But do we believe that? Do we believe that? Problem is, we don't really think about prayer that way. And that's a problem. 
Because like this prophet, we can have our eye more on the seeming omnipotence of man and mistake God's inactivity for inability. And that's not the same thing. And we need to bring all these concerns to God in prayer. We can look with dismay on the judicial decisions of our nation and be tempted to despair. Where shall we turn when the highest courts affirm wickedness as a fundamental right? The answer is, well, there's a higher court. So let's appeal to the court that's higher than the Supreme Court. And we know who sits on that throne, do we not? We turn to the Christians' fundamental right of prayer. Prayer. It's good to sign petitions. But let me tell you something. In the long run, petitioning God is far more effective. Pray, Habakkuk says, for divine intervention. He says to you, pray specifically. Specifically, our confession of faith says men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. All right? You've probably heard that before. Well, let me suggest that's not just good for us with our personal sins. It's also good for national sins. It's good for national sins too. This should not become a morbid exercise nor an exercise in filling our minds with wickedness. Rather, it should be an exercise in itemized repentance. The blood of Jesus, John tells us, cleanses from every sin, every itemized sin that you might list. And as we've seen, Habakkuk here shows us how to list the nation's sins. He read the headlines to God. He named names in his prayer. He pointed fingers in his prayer. He outed closet wickedness in his prayer. And friends, if this nation will turn to God in repentance for its abortions and its homicides, its drug abuse, its trafficking, its pornography, its redefinition of marriage, its corruption, its oppression of the poor, its pride, then it will be cleansed. God does that with nations in history. You should study church history. It happens. And it's really, really cool when it happens. But it doesn't happen without the prayer of God's people. And all those things I listed are not uniquely American sins. They are human sins. And we all have our own personal fair share to repent of. So whether America's sins are secret or open, they are all known to the omniscient God, and he expects you, as a Christian American, to pray to him about them, to read the national headlines to him. He expects you to pray that wrongs will be righted and that he will intervene in his own time and his own way. And finally, Habakkuk says to you, pray perseveringly. Pray perseveringly. How long tells us that this wasn't the first time that Habakkuk had prayed to God on this subject. He had been praying a long time. A long time. Some of you here have been on this earth a lot longer than some of the rest of us. And you have been praying a lot longer than some of us here. And you are still waiting for God to answer your prayers. Habakkuk had been praying a long time and his endurance in prayer is beginning to be strained. 
It's beginning to be strained. And like Habakkuk, we need to be reminded of that parable Jesus taught of the persistent widow. Then Jesus spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Not lose heart. You see, it's this kind of persevering prayer which proves that we are living by faith in an evil age, keeping our eyes on the very God whose ways seem so puzzling to us. That God. The God that you're tempted to think has let you down. That's the God you're meant to be praying to. Don't run away from him. Come to him and express to him that your faith is being shaken. That your patience is is wearing very thin. And tell him your struggle like Habakkuk did. So we thought this morning about the prophet Habakkuk. And we've just begun his story here. We thought about his agonizing burden. We thought about his nation's appalling wickedness. And this mystery of the Lord's apparent, underline apparent, apparent silence. Our study begins with a painfully realistic and honest statement of where we find ourselves in our society. But I'm happy to say that uh, Habakkuk isn't going to leave us there. We're only four verses into the book. Uh, so I don't want to uh, leave you there. I want, you to, I want to give you a sneak peek to where this is all going. If you turn to the very last chapter of the book, uh, chapter 3, and I want to read just uh, the last few verses, Sam, uh, verses uh, 17 Uh, to 19. Here's a sneak peek of where Habakkuk is going to take us. Habakkuk 3.17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. He's describing economic catastrophe there. Just so you're clear. Look what he says. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Now, it's a song to the choir master with stringed instruments. That's a sneak peek of where he's going. This book is going to take us from perplexity to praise Perplexity to praise, from doubting God to trusting God. But I need to tell you that God has a few shocks in store for Habakkuk before we get to those last three verses. God is going to answer the difficult questions that have been raised. But first, we need to come with him on a journey that will explore his all-wise providence. The problem of evil, the need for faith to make sense of it all, and to remain steadfast when God withholds from us the answers that we would like him to give. But you're going to have to come back next week uh, to hear uh, where this goes. But in the meantime, let's, let's be people of prayer. And let's be encouraged that though the book begins with a perplexed prophet, it ends with a praising prophet. He has learned, as shall we, to live by faith in an evil Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the honesty of your word. We want to thank you that you have put difficult places in your word for the times that we face difficult times. Lord, all of us here from time to time endure 
great challenges. And often your providence perplexes us. We, we don't know what's going on. How thankful we are that we can continually come to you in prayer and that it's okay for us to ask these difficult questions. We thank you very especially, Lord Jesus Christ, that you have entered this world with its appalling wickedness, that you have become flesh and dwelt among us. We thank you that you have confronted evil. We thank you that you have done something definitive about it. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you endured the wickedness of this world. You endured the pain and suffering. You were surrounded by the wicked. And Lord, this wicked world put you to death. Lord, as your disciples, can we expect any less? Help us, we pray, O Lord, to walk by faith with you. Help us, O Lord, to find that in the course of our lives, we increasingly mature like Habakkuk did, to see that the Lord has a purpose even though it's mysterious to us, that you do answer prayer, though oftentimes our wait feels like a very long wait. Help us, O Lord God, each one of us, where we find ourselves this morning, to take comfort in these things and bless us as we study this book together. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.